Section 11 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 8, 1555-1558. Notwithstanding the late fortunate change in her situation, Elizabeth must have entertained an anxious sense of its remaining difficulties, if not dangers and the prudent circumspection of her character again, as in the latter years of her brother, dictated the expediency of shrouding herself in all the obscurity compatible with her rank and expectations. To literature, the never-failing resource of its votaries, she turned again for solace and occupation, and claiming the assistance which Ascham was proud and happy to afford her, she resumed the diligent perusal of the Greek and Latin classics. The concerns of the college of which Sir Thomas Pope was the founder likewise engaged a portion of her thoughts, and this gentleman, in a letter to a friend, mentions that the Lady Elizabeth, whom he served, and who was, quote, not only gracious but right learned, end quote, often asked him of the course which he had devised for his scholars. Classical literature was now daily declining from the eminence on which the two preceding sovereigns had laboured to place it. The destruction of monastic institutions, and the dispersion of libraries, with the impoverishment of public schools and colleges through the rapacity of Edward's courtiers, had inflicted far deeper injury on the cause of learning than the studious example of the young monarch and his chosen companions was able to compensate. The persecuting spirit of Mary, by driving into exile or suspending from the exercise of their functions the able and enlightened professors of the Protestant doctrine, had robbed the church and the universities of their brightest luminaries, and it was not under the auspices of her fierce and ignorant bigotry that the cultivators of the elegant and humanizing arts would seek encouragement or protection. Gardner, indeed, where particular prejudices did not interfere, was inclined to favor the learned, and Ashen owed to him the place of Latin secretary. Cardinal Pole also, himself a scholar, was desirous to support, as much as present circumstances would permit, his ancient character of a patron of scholars, and he earnestly pleaded with Sir Thomas Pope to provide for the teaching of Greek as well as Latin in his college. But Sir Thomas Pope persisted in his opinion that a Latin professorship was sufficient, considering the general decay of erudition in the country, which had caused an almost total cessation of the study of the Greek language. It was in the department of English poetry alone that any perceptible advance was effected or prepared during this deplorable era and it was to the vigorous genius of one man, whose vivid personifications of abstract beings were then quite unrivalled, and have since been rarely excelled in our language, and whose clear, copious, and forcible style of poetic narrative interested all readers, and inspired a whole school of writers who worked upon his model, that this advance is chiefly to be attributed. This benefactor to our literature was Thomas Sackville, son of Sir Richard Sackville, an eminent member of Queen Mary's Council, and second cousin to the Lady Elizabeth by his paternal grandmother, who was a Boleyn. The time of his birth is doubtful, some placing it in 1536, others as early as 1527. He studied first at Oxford and afterwards at Cambridge, distinguishing himself at both universities by the vivacity of his parts and the excellence of his compositions, both in verse and prose. According to the custom of that age, which required that an English gentleman should acquaint himself intimately with the laws of his country before he took a seat amongst her legislators, he next entered himself of the inner temple, and about the last year of Mary's reign he served in Parliament. But at this early period of life poetry had more charms for Sackville than law or politics, and following the bent of his genius he first produced Gorboduc, confessedly the earliest specimen of regular tragedy in our language, 
but which will be noticed with more propriety when we reach the period of its representation before queen elizabeth he then about the year fifteen fifty seven as is supposed laid the plan of an extensive work to be called a mirror for magistrates of which the design is thus unfolded in a highly poetical induction the poet wandering forth on a winter's evening and taking occasion from the various objects which quote, told the cruel season end quote, to muse on the melancholy changes of human affairs and especially on the reverses incident to greatness suddenly encounters a piteous white clad all in black who was weeping sighing and wringing her hands in such lamentable guise that quote, never man did see a white but half so woebegone as she end quote. struck with grief and horror at the view he earnestly requires her to unwrap her woes and inform him who and whence she is since her anguish if not relieved must soon put an end to her life she answers quote, sorrow am i in endless torments pained among the furies in the infernal lake from these dismal regions she has come she says to bemoan the luckless lot of those quote, whom fortune in this maze of misery of wretched chance most woeful mirrors chose end quote and she ends by inviting him to accompany her in her return. Quote, come, come, quoth she, and see what I shall show. Come hear the plaining and the bitter bale of worthy men by fortune's overthrow. Come thou and see them ruing all in a row. They were but shades that erst in mind thou rolled. Come, come with me, thine eyes shall then behold. He accepts the invitation, having first done homage to sorrow as to a goddess, since she had been able to read his thought. The scenery and personages are now chiefly copied from the sixth book of the Enid, but with the addition of many highly picturesque and original touches. The companions enter, hand in hand, a gloomy wood, through which sorrow only could have found the way. Quote, but lo, while thus amid the desert dark we passed on with steps and pace unmeet, a rumbling roar, confused with howl and bark of dogs, shook all the ground beneath our feet and struck the din within our ears so deep as half distraught unto the ground I fell, besought return and not to visit hell." His guide, however, encourages him, and they proceed by the lothly lake Avernus, quote, in dreadful fear amid the dreadful place. And first within the porch and jaws of hell sat deep remorse of conscience, all besprent with tears, and to herself oft would she tell her wretchedness, and cursing never stent to sob and sigh, but ever thus lament with thoughtful care, as she that all in vain should wear and waste continually in pain. Her eyes, unsteadfast, rolling here and there, whirled on each place as place that vengeance brought, so was her mind continually in fear, tossed and tormented with tedious thought of those detested crimes that she had wrought, with dreadful cheer and looks thrown to the sky, longing for death, and yet she could not die. Next saw we dread, all trembling how he shook, with foot uncertain proffered here and there, benumbed of speech and with a ghastly look searched every place all pale and dead with fear his cap borne up with staring of his hair etc all the other allegorical personages named and only named by virgil as well as a few additional ones are portrayed in succession and with the same strength and fullness of delineation but with the exception of war who appears in the attributes of mars they are represented simply as examples of old age malady, etc., not as the agents by whom these evils are inflicted upon others. Cerberus and Charon occur in their appropriate offices, but the monstrous forms of Gorgon, Chimera, etc., are judiciously suppressed, and the poet is speedily conducted to the banks of that main broad flood, quote, which parts the gladsome fields from place of woe. 
with sorrow for my guide as there i stood a troop of men the most in arms bedight in tumult clustered bout both sides the flood mongst whom who were ordained to eternal night or who to blissful peace and sweet delight i wot not well it seemed that they were all such as by death's untimely stroke did fall sorrow acquaints him that these are all illustrious examples of the reverses which he was lately deploring who will themselves relate to him their misfortunes and that he must afterwards quote, recount the same to caesar king and peer the first whom he sees advancing towards him from the throng of ghosts is henry duke of buckingham put to death under richard the third and his legend or story is unfortunately the only one which its author ever found leisure to complete the favour of his illustrious kinswoman on her accession causing him to sink the poet in the courtier the ambassador and finally the minister of state but he had already done enough to earn himself a lasting name amongst the improvers of poetry in england in tragedy he gave the first regular model in personification he advanced far beyond all his predecessors and furnished a prototype to that master of allegory spencer a greater than spencer has also been indebted to him as will be evident i think to all who compare the description of the figures on the shield of war in his induction and especially those of them which relate to the siege of troy with the exquisitely rich and vivid description of a picture on that subject in shakespeare's early poem on tarquin and lucretia the legend of the duke of buckingham is composed in a style rich free and forcible the examples brought from ancient history of the suspicion and inward wretchedness to which tyrants have ever been a prey and afterwards of the instability of popular favour might in this age be accounted tedious and pedantic they are however pertinent well recited and doubtless possess the charm of novelty with respect to the majority of contemporary readers the curses which the unhappy duke pours forth against the dependent who had betrayed him may almost compare in the energy and inventiveness of malice with those of shakespeare's queen margaret but they lose their effect by being thrown into the form of monologue and ascribed to a departed spirit whose agonies of grief and rage in reciting his own death have something in them bordering on the burlesque the mind of sackville was deeply fraught as we have seen with classic stores and at a time when england possessed as yet no complete translation of virgil he might justly regard it as a considerable service to the cause of national taste to transplant into our vernacular poetry some scattered flowers from his rich garden of poetic sweets thus he has embellished his legend with an imitation or rather paraphrase of the celebrated description of night in the fourth book of the aeneid these lines well merit transcription Quote, midnight was come when every vital thing with sweet sound sleep their weary limbs did rest the beasts were still the little birds that sing now sweetly slept besides their mother's breast the old and all were shrouded in their nest the waters calm the cruel seas did cease the woods the fields and all things held their peace the golden stars were whirled amid their race and on the earth did laugh with twinkling light when each thing nestled in his resting-place forgot day's pain with pleasure of the night the hare had not the greedy hounds in sight the fearful deer had not the dogs in doubt the partridge dreamt not of the falcon's foot the ugly bear now minded not the stake nor how the cruel mastiffs do him tear the stag lay still unroused from the brake the foamy boar feared not the hunter's spear all things were still in desert bush and brere with quiet heart now from their travail ceased soundly they slept in midst of all their rest the allusion to bear-baiting in the concluding stanza may offend the delicacy of a modern reader 
but let it be remembered that in the days of mary and even of elizabeth this amusement was accounted sport for ladies the mirror for magistrates was not lost to the world by the desertion of sackville from the service of the muses for a similar or rather perhaps the same design was entertained and soon after carried into execution by other and able though certainly inferior hands during the reign of mary but whether before or after the composition of sackville's induction does not appear a certain printer having communicated to several quote, worshipful and honourable persons end quote, his intention of republishing lydgate's translation in verse of boccaccio's fall of princes was by them advised to procure a continuation of the work chiefly in english examples and he applied in consequence to baldwin an ecclesiastic and graduate of oxford baldwin declined to embark alone in so vast a design and one as he thought so little likely to prove profitable but seven other contemporary poets of whom george ferrers has already been mentioned as one having promised their assistance he consented to assume the editorship of the work the general frame agreed upon by these associates was that employed in the original work of boccaccio who feigned that a party of friends being assembled it was determined that each of them should contribute to the pleasure of the company by personating some illustrious and unfortunate character and relating his adventures in the first person a contrivance so tame and meagre compared with the descent to the regions of the dead sketched with so much spirit by sackville that it must have preceded in all probability their knowledge at least of his performance the first part of the work almost entirely by baldwin was written and partly printed in mary's time but its publication was prevented by the interference of the lord chancellor a trait of the mean and cowardly jealousy of the administration which speaks volumes in the first year of elizabeth lord stafford an enlightened patron of letters procured a license for its appearance a second part soon followed in which sackville's induction and legend were inserted the success of this collection was prodigious edition after edition was given to the public under the inspection of different poetical revisers by each of whom copious additions were made to the original work its favour and reputation continued during all the reign of elizabeth and far into that of james for Mr. Wharton tells us that in Chapman's May Day, printed in 1611, quote, a gentleman of the most elegant taste for reading, and highly accomplished in the current books of the times, is called one that has read Marcus Aurelius, Gesta Romanorum, and the Mirror of Magistrates. The greater part of the contributors to this work were lawyers, an order of men who, in most ages and nations, have accounted it a part of professional duty to stand in opposition to popular seditions on one hand, and to the violent and illegal exertion of arbitrary power on the other accordingly many of the legends are made to exemplify the evils of both these excesses and though in more places than one the unlawfulness on any provocation of lifting a hand against quote unquote, the lord's anointed is in strong terms asserted the deposition of tyrants is often recorded with applause and no mercy is shown to the corrupt judge or minister who rests law and justice in compliance with the wicked will of his prince the newly published chronicles of the wars of york and lancaster by hall a writer who made some approach to the character of a genuine historian furnished facts to the first composers of the mirror the later ones might draw also from holinshed and stowe there is some probability that the idea of forming plays on english history was suggested to shakespeare by the earlier of these legends and it is certain that his plays in their turn furnished some of their brightest ornaments of sentiment and diction to the legends added by later editors to a modern reader the greater part of these once admired pieces will appear trite prosaic and tedious but an uncultivated age like the children and the common people of all ages 
is most attracted and impressed by that mode of narration which leaves the least to be supplied by the imagination of the hearer or reader and when this collection of history and verse is compared not with the finished labours of a hume or a robertson but with the prolix and vulgar narratives of the chroniclers the admiration and delight with which it was received will no longer surprise one circumstance more respecting a work so important by the quantity of historical knowledge which it diffused among the mass of readers and the influence which it exerted over the public mind during half a century deserves to be here adverted to baldwin and his fellow labourers began their series from the norman conquest and the same starting-point had been judiciously chosen by sackville but the fabulous history of geoffrey of monmouth still found such powerful advocates in national vanity ignorance and credulity that succeeding editors found it convenient to embellish their work with moral examples drawn from his fictitious series of british kings before the invasion of the romans accordingly they have brought forward a long line of worthies beginning with king albanac son of brute the trojan and ending with cadwallader the last king of the britons scarcely one of whom excepting the renowned prince arthur is known even by name to the present race of students in english history though amongst poetical readers the immortal verse of spenser preserves some recollection that such characters once were fabled in return for this superfluity our saxon line of kings is passed over with very little notice only three legends and those of very obscure personages being interposed between cadwallader and king harold the descent of the royal race from britain from the trojans was at this period more than an article of poetical faith it was maintained or rather taken for granted by the gravest and most learned writers one kelston who dedicated a versified chronicle of the brutes to edward the sixth went further still and traced up the pedigree of his majesty through two-and-thirty generations to osiris king of egypt troynovant the name said to have been given to london by brute its founder was frequently employed in verse a song addressed to elizabeth entitles her the quote, beauteous queen of second troy end quote, and in describing the pageants which celebrated her entrance into the provincial capitals which she visited in her progresses it will frequently be necessary to introduce to the reader personages of the ancient race of this fabled conqueror of our island who claimed for his direct ancestor but whether in the third or fourth degree authors differ no less a hero than the pious aeneas himself but to return to the personal circumstances of elizabeth the public and splendid celebration of the festivals of the church was the least reprehensible of the measures employed by mary for restoring the ascendancy of her religion over the minds of her subjects she had been profuse in her donations of sacred vestments and ornaments to the churches and the monasteries of which she had restored several and these gaudy trappings of a ceremonial worship were exhibited rather indeed to the scandal than the edification of a dejected people in frequent processions conducted with the utmost solemnity and magnificence court entertainments always accompanied these devotional ceremonies and elizabeth seems by assisting at the latter to have purchased admission to the former the christmas festivities in which she shared have already been described in the words of a contemporary chronicler and from the same source we derive the following account of the quote unquote, antique pageantries with which another season of rejoicing was celebrated for her recreation by the munificence of the indulgent superintendent of her conduct and affairs quote, in shrovetide fifteen fifty six sir thomas pope made for the lady elizabeth all at his own costs a great and rich masking in the great hall at hatfield where the pageants were marvellously furnished there were there twelve minstrels antiquely disguised with forty-six or more gentlemen and ladies many of them knights or nobles and ladies of honour apparelled in crimson satin embroidered upon with wreaths of gold and garnished with borders of hanging pearl 
and the devise of a castle of cloth of gold set with pomegranates about the battlements with shields of knights hanging therefrom and six knights in rich harness tourneyed at night the cupboard in the hall was of twelve stages mainly furnished with garnish of gold and silver vessel and a banquet of seventy dishes and after a voidee of spices and subtleties with thirty-six spice-plates all at the charges of sir thomas pope and the next day the play of holofernes but the queen percase misliked these folleries as by her letters to sir thomas it did appear and so their disguising ceased a circumstance soon afterwards occurred calculated to recall past dangers to the mind of the princess and perhaps to disturb her with apprehensions of their recurrence dudley ashton formerly a partisan of wyatt had escaped into france after the defeat and capture of his leader whence he was still plotting the overthrow of mary's government by the connivance or assistance of that court now on the brink of war with england he was at length enabled to send over one Clébéry, a condemned person whom he instructed to counterfeit the earl of devonshire and endeavour to raise the country in his cause letters and proclamations were at the same time dispersed by ashton in which the name of elizabeth was employed without scruple the party had even the slanderous audacity to pretend that between courtney and the heiress of the crown the closest of all intimacies if not an actual marriage subsisted and the matter went so far that at ipswich one of the strongholds of protestantism Clébéry proclaimed the Earl of Devonshire and the Princess King and Queen. But the times were past when any advantage could be taken of this circumstance against Elizabeth, whose perfect innocence was well known to the government, and the council immediately wrote in handsome terms to Sir Thomas Pope, directing him to acquaint her, in whatever manner he should judge best, with the abominable falsehood circulated respecting her. A few days after, the Queen herself wrote also to her sister, in terms fitted to assure her of perfect safety. The princess replied, says Stripe, quote, in a well-penned letter, utterly detesting and disclaiming all concern in the enterprise, and declaiming against the actors in it. Of the epistle thus commended, a single paragraph will probably be esteemed a sufficient specimen. Quote, and among earthly things I chiefly wish this one, that there were as good surgeons for making anatomies of hearts, that might show my thoughts to your majesty, as there are expert physicians of the bodies able to express the inward griefs of their maladies to the patient for then i doubt not but know well that whatsoever others should suggest by malice yet your majesty should be sure by knowledge so that the more such misty clouds obfuscate the clear light of my truth the more my tried thoughts should glister to the dimming of their hidden malice etc it must be confessed that this erudite princess had not perfectly succeeded in transplanting into her own language the epistolary graces of her favourite Cicero, but to how many much superior classical scholars might a similar remark be applied. The frustration of Mary's hope of becoming a mother, her subsequent ill state of health, and the resolute refusal of the Parliament to permit the coronation of her husband, who had quitted England in disgust to attend his affairs on the Continent, conferred, in spite of all the efforts of the Catholic party, a daily augmenting importance on Elizabeth. When, therefore, in November 1556, she had come in state to Somerset Place, her town residence, to take up her abode for the winter, a kind of court was immediately formed around her, and she might hope to be richly indemnified for any late anxieties or privations, by the brilliant festivities, the respectful observances, and the still more welcome flatteries of which she found herself the distinguished object. But disappointment awaited her she had been invited to court for the purpose of receiving a second and more solemn offer of the hand of the duke of savoy whose suit was enforced by the king her brother-in-law with the whole weight of his influence or authority 
this alliance had been the subject of earnest correspondence between philip and the english council the imperial ambassadors were waiting in england for her answer and the disappointment of the high-raised hopes of the royal party by her reiteration of a decided negative was followed by her quitting london in a kind of disgrace early in the month of december but philip would not suffer the business to end here indignant at the resistance opposed by the princess to his measures he seems to have urged the queen to interfere in a manner authoritative enough to compel obedience but by a remarkable exchange of characters mary now appeared as the protectress of her sister from the violence of philip in a letter still preserved she tells him that unless the consent of parliament were first obtained she fears that the accomplishment of the marriage would fail to procure for him the advantages which he expected but that however this might be her conscience would not allow her to press the matter further that the friar alfonso philip's confessor whom he had sent to argue the point with her had entirely failed of convincing her that in fact she could not comprehend the drift of his arguments philip it is manifest must already have made use of very harsh language towards the queen respecting her conduct in this affair for she deprecates his further displeasure in very abject terms but yet persists in her resolution with laudable firmness her husband was so far however from yielding with a good grace a point on which he had certainly no right to dictate either to mary or to her sister that soon afterwards he sent into england the duchesses of parma and lorraine for the purpose of conducting the princess into flanders but this step was ill-judged his coldness and neglect had by this time nearly extinguished the fond passion of the queen who is said to have torn his picture in a fit of rage on report of some disrespectful language which he had used concerning her since his departure for the continent resentment and jealousy now divided her gloomy soul and philip's behaviour on which she had doubtless her spies caused her to regard the duchess of lorraine as the usurper of his heart the extraordinary circumstances of pomp and parade with which this lady notwithstanding the smallness of her revenues now appeared in england confirmed and aggravated her most painful suspicions and so far from favouring the suit urged by such an ambassadress mary became more than ever determined on thwarting it she would not permit the duchesses to pay the princess a single visit at hatfield and her reception gave them so little encouragement to persevere that they speedily returned to report their failure to him who sent them these circumstances seem to have produced a cordiality of feeling and frequency of intercourse between the sisters which had never before existed in february fifteen fifty seven the princess arrived with a great retinue at somerset place and when the spring was somewhat further advanced her majesty honoured her by returning the visit at hatfield the royal guest was of course to be entertained with every species of courtly and elegant delight and accordingly on the morning after her arrival she and the princess after attending mass went to witness a grand exhibition of bear-baiting with which their highnesses were right well content in the evening the chamber was adorned with a sumptuous suit of tapestry called but from what circumstance does not appear quote, the hangings of antioch after supper a play was represented by the choristers of st paul's then the most applauded actors in london and after it was over one of the children accompanied with his voice the performance of the princess on the virginals sir thomas pope could now without offence gratify his lady with another show devised by him in that spirit of romantic magnificence equally agreeable to the taste of the age and the temper of elizabeth herself she was invited to repair to enfield chase to take the amusement of hunting the heart twelve ladies in white satin attended her on their quote, ambling palfreys end quote, and twenty yeomen clad in green at the entrance of the forest she was met by fifty archers in scarlet boots and yellow caps armed with gilded bows one of whom presented to her a silver-headed arrow winged with peacock's feathers 
the splendid show concluded according to the established laws of the chase by the offering of the knife to the princess as first lady on the field and her taking say of the buck with her own fair and royal hand during the summer of the same year the queen was pleased to invite her sister to an entertainment at richmond of which we have received some rather interesting particulars the princess was brought from somerset place in the queen's barge which was richly hung with garlands of artificial flowers and covered with a canopy of green sarcenet wrought with branches of eglantine in embroidery and powdered with blossoms of gold in the barge she was accompanied by sir thomas pope and four ladies of her chamber six boats attended filled with her retinue habited in russet damask and blue embroidered satin tasselled and spangled with silver their bonnets cloth of silver with green feathers the queen received her in a sumptuous pavilion in the labyrinth of the gardens this pavilion which was of cloth of gold and purple velvet was made in the form of a castle probably an allusion to the kingdom of castile its sides were divided in compartments which bore alternately the fleur-de-lis in silver and the pomegranate the bearing of granada in gold a sumptuous banquet was here served up to the royal ladies in which there was introduced a pomegranate tree in confectionery work bearing the arms of spain so offensively glaring was the preference given by mary to the country of her husband and of her maternal ancestry over that of which she was a native and in her own right queen there was no masking or dancing but a great number of minstrels performed the princess returned to somerset place the same evening and the next day to hatfield the addresses of a new suitor soon after furnished elizabeth with an occasion of gratifying the queen by fresh demonstrations of respect and duty the king of sweden was earnestly desirous of obtaining for eric his eldest son the hand of a lady whose reversionary prospects added to her merit and accomplishments rendered her without dispute the first match in europe he had detained his son's request to be permitted to visit her in person fearing that those violences of temper and eccentricities of conduct of which this ill-fated prince had already given strong indications might injure his cause in the judgment of so discerning a princess the business was therefore to be transacted through the swedish ambassador but he was directed by his sovereign to make his application by a message to elizabeth herself in which the queen and council were not for the present to participate the princess took hold of this circumstance as a convenient pretext for rejecting a proposal which she felt no disposition to encourage and she declared that she could never listen to any overtures of this nature which had not first received the sanction of her majesty the ambassador pleaded in answer that as a gentleman his master had judged it becoming that his first application should be made to herself but that should he be so happy as to obtain her concurrence he would then as a king make his demand in form to the queen her sister the princess replied that if it were to depend on herself a single life would ever be her choice and she finally dismissed the suit with a negative on receiving some hint of this transaction mary sent for sir thomas pope and having learned from him all the particulars she directed him to express to her sister her high approbation of her proper and dutiful conduct on this occasion and also to make himself acquainted with her sentiments on the subject of matrimony in general he soon after transmitted to her majesty all the information she could desire in the following letter Quote, first after i had declared to her grace how well the queen's majesty liked of her prudent and honourable answer made to the same messenger i then opened unto her grace the effects of the said messenger's credence which after her grace had heard i said the queen's highness had sent me to her grace not only to declare the same but also to understand how her grace liked the said motion whereunto after a little pause taken her grace answered in form following master pope i require you after my most humble commendations to the queen's majesty to render unto the same like thanks that it pleased her highness 
of her goodness to conceive so well of my answer made to the same messenger, and herewithal of her princely consideration, with such speed to command you by your letters, to signify the same unto me, who before remained wonderfully perplexed, fearing that her majesty might mistake the same, for which her goodness I acknowledge myself bound to honour, serve, love, and obey her highness during my life requiring you also to say unto her majesty that in the king my brother's time there was offered me a very honourable marriage or two and ambassadors sent to treat with me touching the same whereupon i made my humble suit unto his highness as some of honour yet living can be testimonies that it would like the same to give me leave with his grace's favour to remain in that estate i was which of all others best liked me or pleased me and in good faith i pray you say unto her highness that i am even at this present of the same mind and so intend to continue with her majesty's favour and assuring her highness i so well like this estate as i persuade myself there is not any kind of life comparable unto it and as concerning my liking the said motion made by the said messenger i beseech you say unto her majesty that to my remembrance i never heard of his master before this time and that i so well like both the message and the messenger as i shall most humbly pray god upon my knees that from henceforth i never hear of the one nor the other assure you that if he should eftsoons repair unto me i would forbear to speak to him and were there nothing else to move me to mislike the motion other than that his master would attempt the same without making the queen's majesty privy thereunto it were cause sufficient and when her grace had thus ended i was so bold as of myself to say unto her grace her pardon first required that i thought few or none would believe but that her grace could be right well contented to marry so that there were some honourable marriage offered her by the queen's highness or by her majesty's assent whereunto her grace answered what i shall do hereafter i know not but i assure you upon my truth and fidelity and as god be merciful unto me i am not at this time otherwise minded than i have declared unto you no though i were offered the greatest prince in all europe and yet percase the queen's majesty may conceive this rather to proceed of a maidenly shamefacedness than upon any such certain determination this letter appears to have been the last transaction which occurred between mary and elizabeth from it and from the whole of the notices relative to the situation of the latter thrown together in the preceding pages it may be collected that during the last three years of her sister's reign the period namely of her residence at hatfield she had few privations and no personal hardships to endure but for individuals whom she esteemed for principles to which her conscience secretly inclined for her country which she truly loved her apprehensions must have been continually excited and too often justified by events the most cruel and disastrous the re-establishment by solemn acts of the legislature of the romish ritual and the papal authority though attended with the entire prohibition of all protestant worship was not sufficient for the bigotry of mary aware that the new doctrine still found harbour in the bosoms of her subjects she sought to drag them by her violence from this last asylum for to her as to all tyrants it appeared both desirable and possible to subject the liberty of thinking to the regulation and control of human laws by virtue of her authority as head of the english church a title which the murmurs of her parliament had compelled her against her conscience to resume after laying it aside for some time she issued an ecclesiastical commission which wanted nothing of the spanish inquisition but the name the commissioners were empowered to call before them the leading men in every parish of the kingdom and to compel them to bind themselves by oath to give information against such of their neighbours as by abstaining from attendance at church or other symptoms of a disaffection to the present order of things afforded room to doubt the soundness of their belief articles of faith were then offered to the suspected persons for their signature and on their simple refusal they were handed over to the civil power and fire and faggot awaited them 
by this barbarous species of punishment about two hundred and eighty persons were stated to have perished during the reign of mary but to the disgrace of the learned the rich and the noble these martyrs with the exception of a few distinguished ecclesiastics were almost all from the middling or lower some from the very lowest classes of society amongst these glorious sufferers therefore the princess could have few personal friends to regret but in the much larger number of the disgraced the suspected the imprisoned the fugitive she saw the greater part of the public characters whether statesmen or divines on whose support and attachment she had learned to place reliance the extraordinary cruelties exercised upon sir john cheek who whilst he held the post of preceptor to her brother had also assisted in her own education must have been viewed by elizabeth with strong emotion of indignation and grief it has been already mentioned that after his release from imprisonment incurred in the cause of lady jane grey a release by the way which was purchased by the sacrifice of his landed property and all his appointments this learned and estimable person obtained permission to travel for a limited period this was regarded as a special favour for it was one of mary's earliest acts of tyranny to prohibit the escape of her destined victims and it was only by joining themselves to the foreign congregations of the reformed who had license to depart the kingdom or by eluding with much hazard the vigilance of the officers by whom the seaports were watched that any of her protestant subjects had been enabled to secure liberty of conscience in a voluntary exile it is a little remarkable that rome should have been cheek's first city of pilgrimage but classical associations in this instance overcame the force of protestant antipathies he took the opportunity however of visiting basil in his way where an english congregation was established and where he had the pleasure of introducing himself to several learned characters once perhaps the chosen associates of erasmus in the beginning of fifteen fifty six he had reached strasbourg for it was thence that he addressed a letter to his dear friend and brother-in-law sir william cecil who appears to have made some compliances with the times which alarmed and grieved him it is in a strain of the most affectionate earnestness that he entreats him to hold fast his faith and quote, to take heed how he did in the least warp or strain his conscience by any compliance for his worldly security end quote. but such exhortations however salutary in themselves did not come with the best grace from those who had found in flight a refuge from the terrors of that persecution which was raging in all its fierceness before the eyes of such of their unfortunate brethren as had found themselves necessitated to abide the fiery trial a remark by no means foreign to the case before us sir john cheek's leave of absence seems now to have expired and it was probably with the design of making interest for its renewal that he privately repaired soon after the date of his letter to brussels on a visit to his two learned friends lord paget and sir john mason then residing in that city as mary's ambassadors these men were recent converts or more likely conformists to the court religion and paget's furious counsels against elizabeth had been already mentioned it is to be hoped that they did not add to the guilt of self-interested compliances in matters of faith the blacker crime of a barbarous act of perfidy against a former associate and brother protestant who had scarcely ceased to be their guest but certain it is that on some secret intimation of his having entered the territories king philip issued special orders for the seizure of cheek on his return between brussels and antwerp the unhappy man with sir peter carew his companion was apprehended by a provost marshal bound hand and foot thrown into a cart and so conveyed on board a vessel sailing for england he is said to have been brought to the tower muffled according to an odious practice of spanish despotism introduced into the country during the reign of mary under the terror of such a surprise the awful alternative quote, comply or burn end quote, was laid before him human frailty under these trying circumstances prevailed 
and in an evil hour this champion of light and learning was tempted to subscribe his false assent to the doctrine of the real purpose and the whole list of Romish articles. This was but the beginning of humiliations. He was now required to pronounce two ample recantations, one before the queen in person, the other before a cardinal Pole, who also imposed upon him various acts of penance. Even this did not immediately procure his liberation from prison and while he was obliged in public to applaud the mercy of his enemies in terms of the most abject submission, he bewailed in private, with abundance of bitter tears, their cruelty, and still more his own criminal compliance. The savage zealots knew not how to set bounds to their triumph over a man whom learning and acknowledged talents and honourable employments had rendered so considerable. Even when at length he was set free, and flattered himself that he had drained to the dregs his cup of bitterness, he discovered that the masterpiece of barbarity, the refinement of insult, was yet in store. He was required, as evidence of the sincerity of his conversion, and a token of his complete restoration to royal favour, to take his seat on the bench by the side of the savage Bonner, and assist at the condemnation of his brother Protestants. The unhappy man did not refuse, so thoroughly was his spirit subdued within him, but it broke his heart, and retiring at last to the house of an old and learned friend, whose door was open to him in Christian charity, he there ended within a few months his miserable life, a prey to shame, remorse, and melancholy. A sadder tale the annals of persecution do not furnish, or one more humbling to the pride and confidence of human virtue. Many have failed under lighter trials, few have expiated a failure by suffering so severe. How often must this victim of a wounded spirit have dwelt with envy amid his slower torments, on the brief agonies and lasting crown of a courageous martyrdom! It is happily not possible for a kingdom to flourish under the crushing weight of such a tyranny as that of Mary. The retreat of the foreign Protestants had robbed the country of hundreds of industrious and skilful artificers. The arbitrary exactions of the Queen impoverished and discouraged the trading classes, against whom they principally operated. Tumults and insurrections were frequent, and afforded a pretext for the introduction of Spanish troops. The treasury was exhausted in efforts for maintaining the power of the sovereign, restoring the church to opulence and splendor, and re-edifying the fallen monasteries. To add to these evils, a foreign marriage rendered both the queen and country subservient to the interested or ambitious projects of the Spanish sovereign. For his sake a needless war was declared against France, which after draining entirely an already failing treasury, ended in the loss of Calais, the last remaining trophy of the victories by which the Edwards and the Henrys had humbled in the dust the pride and power of France. This last stroke completed the dejection of the nation and Mary herself, who was by no means destitute of sensibility where the honour of her crown was concerned, sunk into an incurable melancholy. Quote, when I die, said she to her attendants who sought to discover the cause of her despondency, Calais will be found at my heart. The unfeeling desertion of her husband, the consciousness of having incurred the hatred of her subjects, the unprosperous state of her affairs, and the well-founded apprehension that her successor would once more overthrow the whole edifice of papal power which she had laboured with such indefatigable ardour to restore, may each be supposed to have infused its own drop of bitterness into the soul of this unhappy princess. The long and severe mortifications of her youth, while they soured her temper, had also undermined her constitution, and contributed to bring upon her a premature old age. Dropsical symptoms began to appear, and after a lingering illness of nearly half a year, she sunk into the grave on the seventeenth day of November, 1558, in the forty-fourth year of her age. End of section 11